As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Pee Wee Gaskins had a lot of friends, but if they crossed him... He wasn't afraid to kill them. Eight bodies were found in his burial field, but those victim stories may never have come to light had it not been for the school teacher who filed a missing persons report. It all began with Kim Gelkins and this story of that missing girl. Kim Gelkin was killed because she was a threat to Pee Wee's freedom. She was always in danger of something that other people were trying to do to her. It's easy to get caught up in someone's manipulations, but then you fall victim in the same way. Pee Wee said, Mr. Jim, you didn't have a thing to worry about. I was right here with you. I was petrified. From iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures, this is Pee Wee Gaskins Was Not My Friend. I'm Jeff Keating. Kim Gelkin lived at Calvert Street in North Charleston, which was across the street from where Pee Wee lived. Kim lived with her father and her older sister, Pee-wee befriended all kinds of people. Kim Gelkins visited Pee-wee's home often and became friends with Donna Gaskins, his last wife. Donna was only seven years older than Kim. Kim's mother died a couple of months before she met Pee-wee and Donna, and it wouldn't be long before she would disappear. From his research and many conversations with Pee-wee, Jim learned a lot about the tragic life of that missing girl. Kim was 13 years old when she died. She was gracious. She was loving. She was appreciative. She very much loved Donna Gaskins, and Donna was awfully good to her. But she was a gentle, slow, 
baby teenage girl. Kim apparently struggled with academics. A fifth grader at Shakur Elementary School, she was three years older than her classmates, most of whom were 10 and 11. That's where she met her teacher, Marianne Griffin. When she assigned the students to write a paper on the person they admired most, Kim wrote about her neighbor, Donna. Kim often took weekend trips with Donna and Pee Wee to their home in Prospect, South Carolina. The Charlotte Observer reported that Kim's sister and father had warned her not to be going to the Gaskins' home and cited Marianne Griffin, who recognized, quote, that she looked up to this 19-year-old girl because her mother was dead, end quote. Here's Anita Beatty. I cannot imagine how lonely that child Kim Gelkin was. And her teacher clearly loved her in a way and felt sorry for her and protective of her and had a sense of all of the trials that Kim must have gone through. The teacher at Shakora Elementary School, Marianne Griffin was her name. She filed a missing persons report after a week and a half of Kim being absent. It doesn't appear her father filed a missing persons report. No one on her street did this. Those people under the radar didn't report to the police missing people. But this good teacher did this. The Kim Gelkin story is what started the whole investigation. Thank goodness for that alert and caring teacher. Without that teacher, All the victims may still just be in a missing persons file. And of course, the law enforcement took it seriously and the thread started to unravel. And this put the North Charleston police, Rufus Stoney and Roy Green, on this case. And they just sent an excellent team and excellent policemen. And they got on this case, and they ultimately found that Pee Wee Gaskins was tied to this missing girl. It didn't take long to zero in on Gaskins as a suspect. Investigators were aggressive, pounding the pavement looking for leads. That's when they met the mother of Dennis Bellamy, Diane Bellamy, and Johnny Knight. She reported her three children were also missing. Mrs. Knight brought the story to a head. Marianne Griffin began it. But Mrs. Knight gave information that people in the neighborhood are all missing. They would also learn Jesse, Judy, and Johnny Sellers were missing. And the common denominator in these missing persons was Pee Wee Gaskins. When they arrived at his home, Pee Wee wasn't there. But the detectives did meet Sandy and Donna Gaskins. It was the ex-wife Sandy who gave the detectives the lead they were looking for. Sandy Snell Gaskins told the police that Pee Wee and Kim were often in prospect. Knowing Kim was last seen with Pee Wee Gaskins, police quickly obtained a search warrant for Pee Wee's trailer, 90 miles away in prospect. 
It was there they found clothing that belonged to Kim Gelkins. They also found a stolen car on his lot, and he was arrested that same day for auto theft and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. He took her out across county lines. It was a minor charge as far as compared to murder, but it was certainly serious enough to put him back in jail. Still, there was no sign of Kim Gelkins, who had been missing for nearly 60 days. Police detectives tracked down Walter Neely, Pee-wee's close friend, and applied pressure. Walter buckled, but he had no idea where Kim was. He didn't know Pee-wee had taken her to stay with his daughter, Shirley Ann Gaskins, and her husband, Howard Evans. Police knew she wasn't there anymore. Shirley Ann thought Kim had gone to Indiana, where she had some family. So police were in a bind. Walter had taken them to Pee-wee's burial grounds, and they were knee-deep in digging up bodies. But still no word on Kim Gelkins, dead or alive. Kim Gelkin was abused rather brutally by her father, and she loved and adored Pee-wee Gaskins and his wife Donna. Pee-wee is directly across the street from Kim. Kim is distraught and wants to get away. So she decides she's going to go get help from the person who helps everybody. And she went over in tears, and he said, What's the matter, Kim? Let's talk. She says, I want to talk to you by ourselves. And they step out into the back of a car he's working on. And she tells him, I've got to get away. Can I move in with you all across the street? And he thought a minute. said, we can't do that, Kim, but I can get a place for you. And he thought immediately, I'll take her to Shirley Ann Evans, his daughter, at Prospect, Roper's Crossroads. She can go there. Because Howard and Shirley Ann knew about what I tell them to do. So he made arrangements to take Kim to Prospect, which he did the following Friday afternoon, honestly motivated to help her and get her away from her father. Her mother had died six months before of cancer, and she was absolutely distraught with the behavior of her father and went directly to Pee Wee. She wanted results. That's why she went to Pee Wee first rather than anyone else. And Pee Wee takes Kim Gelkin to prospect to live at his daughter's house, knowing that there's a great risk in doing this because he had no business taking a teenage girl anywhere for anything, but he did it to help her. There was no evidence ever submitted that her father abused her and no charges ever filed. Gaskins would go on to explain to Jim, as he had in his deposition, that Kim stayed with his daughter and her husband for a few months. This meant she disappeared from her home for more than a month before anybody reported her missing. Just prior to that report being filed, Kim had an opportunity to speak with the owner of a local country store in Prospect, and what she revealed was shocking. So she goes to the country store and talks to the owner and asks for help. And somehow word gets back to Shirley Ann that Kim is talking about being abused by her husband. 
Kim told the store owner that Pee Wee, his son-in-law Howard Evans, and his brother Charles were all raping her in the house. When word got back to Shirley Ann, she called her father Pee Wee to report that Kim had been jawing. It was about 90 days into the search for Kim Gelkins. Police were busy unearthing the eight bodies Pee Wee had murdered, but Kim was not one of them. North Charleston Police Chief Linwood Simmons stated that all leads to find the girl had been exhausted, but that the case was still active. Police Detective Roy Green points directly to Pee Wee Gaskins as a prime suspect, saying Kim was last seen with him in a white pickup truck at his trailer home in Prospect. Roy suspects foul play. And then... Nothing. Absolutely nothing. The case goes cold for almost a year. Until... Pee Wee was convicted of Dennis Bellamy's murder and found himself on trial for Barnwell Yates' murder. Pee Wee gave up Barnwell's body in exchange for a conjugal visit with Donna. And for an additional conjugal visit, he led investigators to Kim Gilkin's body. Kim Gilkin was killed with a Campbell soup knife. Pee Wee waited one hour for Kim to be brought to him in a shallow grave not very far from his trailer there in Prospect. And Kim was brought to Pee Wee by two young women, Marie Marlowe and Sherry Lee are their names. And they were never, ever, as far as I know, accused of anything. Kim Gilkin was killed because she was a threat to Pee Wee's freedom. There was no evidence to support Pee Wee's allegation, and the two women were never charged with anything. Kim's jawing about being raped threatened Pee Wee's freedom, and he tried to save himself by sacrificing her. He shot and stabbed Kim Gelkins. There was no evidence that confirmed rape or sexual activity of any kind. The body was too decomposed when recovered. Identification was made, matching her teeth to her last known picture, showing her smile. But there were no dental records for comparison. At the time of his confession, Pee Wee was in prison for life, trying to plea deal to avoid death. He was never charged for Kim Gelkin's murder, and police closed the file. To believe she was being saved and to wind up being killed, not because of anything she did, but because of what two males reportedly were doing with her so he wouldn't have to go back to jail because she was going to tell the police. She was always in danger of something that other people were trying to do to her. And all she wanted was love and safety. And that rings a bell with me. I cannot ever imagine not feeling safe. Hey. 
As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was bought it? Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For reasons unknown, Kim Gelkins felt safe asking Pee-wee and Donna Gaskins for help. She was one of numerous people who felt this way around Pee-wee, but then found herself on the wrong end of a knife and gun. Diane, Dennis, Janice, all of the people Pee-wee killed experienced this at one time or another. Jim Beatty sensed that kinship as well. He put it at risk when he failed to deliver the radio to Pee-wee's son. And he was anxious to restore that trust again as he sought to finish his book on Pee-wee Gaskins. Betrayal is probably the fiercest enemy that he had. He did not ever want to be betrayed. And then when I was seen in a tiny, tiny way of betraying him by failing to take the radio to his son, 
that one thing let me know that I could be in danger just as the people that he murdered. Jim worked to repair anything that put him in danger. Well, one day that I visited Pee Wee, the visiting room was full. And the guard, I believe his name was Joe, said, do you mind if you all meet in a room down the hall? I said, oh, no, not at all. So he took us into a room, and he closed the door, and it clicked. And I said, Pee Wee, is that, is that door locked? And he said, Mr. Jim, they lock every door I go into. Jim was stressed after the radio incident. And there he was, locked in a room with Gaskins. And now, he was scared. So we had our usual hour and a half meeting. Two hours came. Two hours and 15 minutes came. Three o'clock came. And I was beginning to get uneasy. Finally, the guard I'd never seen before. He opens the door and apologizes, says, I'm sorry. Actually, we forgot where we put you. And Pee-wee said, Mr. Jim is getting a little anxious. And then Pee-wee reached over and put his hand on my arm and said, Mr. Jim, you didn't have a thing to worry about. I was right here with you. I was petrified. Jim wanted to finish his book, which would mean more interviews. And even though he was petrified, Jim did his best to stay on good terms with Pee Wee. Anyway, he said, you know, it's been almost a year now since I've seen my mama. And I said, would you like for me to bring her here to visit you? He said, I would like that. So we arranged for me to take his mother to the prison. Yuli Parrott was Pee-wee's mother, and Anita Beatty remembers her. Pee-wee's mother, Ms. Parrott, I called her that, was as kind and upright and engaging person. She's quiet, sort of dignified, small. Her house, I was impressed. I've never been so impressed in a home. It was a little shack. It was like a shotgun shack. And the yard wasn't a yard. It was dirt around the house. I know she swept it. It was immaculate. That house was absolutely, you could eat off the floor. I'm sure his mother fed him wonderful food, and he knew she loved him, and he wanted her to know he loved her. She was quite special. I think there were lots of stories that he wouldn't tell until she was gone, but he went Well, his family life was, of course, no family. He had an older sister. He and his older sister were born to Yuli Parrott out of wedlock. And Yuli worked in the fields with the men to survive. She was, as best I can tell, a hardworking, honorable individual who loved her children and cared for them as well as she could. They were passed around. Pee-wee told me, that there were days he would wake up and not know whose house he was in. He'd been taken there for them to care for him. Then he spoke about the treatment of his mother's brothers, of him. 
from age four on until the arrest at age 13, that Sunday afternoon when he went to jail, then to reform school, he was brutally, brutally tortured by his uncles. And this was corroborated when I had dinner with Carol Hanna, Pee Wee's younger sister by 17 years of age. He was abused. He was abused as a little boy. He was abused by the uncles. Yet Jim knew that a mother wanted to be with her child, and a child with his mother. I picked her up, took her to the prison. She would not talk. I could not get her to talk about anything. Quiet, gentle, old, frail, but strong. And the room was relatively empty that day. And I sat over in the corner as far as I could get from them, but I was taking notes and observing what I saw them do. And I noticed that from time to time, Pee-wee would just move his hand over and put it on top of her hand, which was very poignant in my thinking. I hear a man that I didn't dream had any kind of feeling for anything or anybody was clearly enthralled with his mother and uh, was happy to be with her. And they chatted and talked, and the hour, ten minutes came, the end of our visit. And they stood and embraced. And the only time that I ever saw Pee-wee smile was when he closed his eyes and hugged his mother. And here's this man who's taken life after life, embracing the woman who gave him his life. And I thought that that was a powerful picture of seeing that there. And I thought, people ask me often, what drew you to this man? How could you possibly keep going back there to that creature? The irony of this taker of lives and this giver of his life embracing each other. And he smiles. The only time I ever saw him smile. Here's solicitor Dick Harputlian talking about Pee Wee's intelligence and childhood. If you took Charles Manson, knocked about 50 points off his IQ, have him grow up in a swamp in South Carolina where he's abused sexually by men. I think he dropped out of school in the seventh grade, never had any education. But most of the people he hung out with were criminals. He spent some time with the carnival. I mean, he's just sort of a redneck Charlie Manson and charismatic extent that he attracted people to him, manipulated people. Pee Wee preyed on the vulnerability of his victims and forced many of them to be complicit in his crimes. He manipulated everyone around him and he got everyone around him to do what he wanted, including the babies. Because anything Pee-wee asked him to do, he did. I mean, he wanted him to visit his mother. We did, took to the beach, you know, took his sister and little Donnie, Pee-wee's son. So, I mean, anything that Pee-wee needed, Jim wanted to help him with. He was just, he's just a The babies also met with Pee-wee's sister. His sister looked like a different kind of person from Pee-wee. She was 
attractive. She was polite, well-mannered, just a different ilk, almost. And it must have been hell for her to be the victim of a brother who was the most notorious mass murderer in South Carolina history. And she's growing up, going to high school, going to school. Thank God she didn't share his last name. And so that may have protected her some. But Jim went out, took her to lunch, I think, one time. And and I'm sure she shared stories with him about the pain and the anger she felt toward him. Not just for what he did, that was bad enough, but for the fact that she shared his blood somehow and had to accept some of the fallout from the publicity and the notoriety and the horror of this man. And his son, he didn't stand a chance because he was Donald Henry Gaskins III. Here's Jennifer Hawes talking about one characteristic of a killer. I think it goes back to control. They're like master manipulators that you think they're helping you or you're helping them. It's easy to get caught up in someone's manipulations and you alone understand them in a way that nobody else does. And then you fall victim in the same way. This is how Gaskins made himself appear as a protector, seeming to be generous and selfless at times. This is how he convinced Johnny Knight to walk into the woods to meet his brother before being murdered himself. This is how he was able to kill Kim Gelkins and how he got Wanda Snell and Walter Neely to go along with outrageous stories and cover up his crimes. By now, Jim was hopeful that Pee Wee posed no threat to him or his family. He genuinely looked for the good in human beings. He always wanted to help others and this extended to Pee-wee as well. He said, could you do me a big favor? I said, sure, what is it? If I can, I will. He presented his case that if they had 50 feet of TV cable, a flat wire with copper on either side, he could hook a, a TV set, and it would enable 50 people to be able to watch TV rather than the five or six. And I thought, well, how nice. I would love to help that many people be able to watch Sunday afternoon football as I do. Pee-wee was a cell block trustee, and this gave him certain responsibilities. Here's Dick Harputlian. Well, a trustee in the Department of Corrections or CCI back then specifically would be somebody that would be given supervisory duties over the other inmates. Pee-wee had been in and out of the Department of Corrections most of his life, and so he knew the institution. And once he had these life sentences, they knew he was going to be there for a while, stability. He had skills. They trusted him to do the work that they didn't have to pay somebody else to do, fix the plumbing, fix the electrical work, and to give tasks to the other inmates. He was the guy that controlled the lives in terms of who got to work in the library, who had to work in the laundry, different jobs. Different jobs, like wiring TVs for his fellow inmates. Jim Beatty's currency is altruism. Work for and support others. People can be redeemed. Pee Wee Gaskins knew this and was ready to leverage Jim's behavior for a scheme involving the wire. And I said, sure, I'll be able to do that. Is that okay to do? Can I mail that here to you? He said, oh, yeah. 
I get packages all the time. They investigate everything. They open it. They check to see if there's anything illegal. And I say, well, tell me again, what am I buying and how do I do this? Just go to any hardware store and ask for 50 feet of television cable wire. And I went to Ace Hardware somewhere there in Myrtle Beach. I mailed it to Pee Wee, wondering how long it would take him to get the TV connected so many people could watch. I did the ultimate favor of mailing him television wire, 50 feet of TV cable. I learned later that 50 feet was within the distance of his cell to Rudolph Tyner's. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
In the spring of 1978, Rudolf Tyner was 18 years old when he left New York City after several run-ins with the police. He ended up in coastal South Carolina and stayed with Carlton Davis. He frequented Moon's Grocery for snacks and drinks. Bill and Murdy Moon owned the store and lived down the street. Their son and daughters also lived nearby with their families. Bill was retired military and took classes at nearby Coastal Carolina University. Dr. Jim Beatty knew Bill. I taught at Coastal Carolina University. I had the good occasion, at least two semesters, of registering Bill Moon. And I liked this guy so much, and I asked him to sign up for one of my English classes. And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, I've heard about you. He said, I'm not going to. To Jim's disappointment, Bill didn't sign up for his literature classes those semesters. Jim thought Bill would have enjoyed the poems, stories, and tales he taught from the medieval period into the 20th century. Those poems and stories framed Jim's encounter with the world. One of those stories, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, provides a clear arena to engage the contradictions of the inner self, the hero versus evil, true love finding a home, and the duality of the human condition. Hefty topics for authors across the ages that became guiding themes in Dr. Jim Beatty's life. But Bill Moon never took Jim's class. And on March 18, 1978, he and his wife, Murdy, worked their last night together. They were closing up their store just before 10 p.m. when Rudolf Tyner walked in. He had been in the store several times in the previous weeks, and this time, he wielded a shotgun. Tyner took their money and fled out the screen door. For unknown reasons, he re-entered the store and shot Bill Moon in the chest, and then shot Murdy, who fell to the floor, facing her dying husband. Tyner left the store and got into a car driven by Carlton Davis. They were arrested hours later when Carlton's father called the police after becoming suspicious. Both signed confessions the next morning. All of coastal South Carolina mourned the moons and voiced their anger at Tyner. Jim Beatty read about the tragic murders. crushed, crushed, and hear his devotion to his stepson, Todesimo, and to his wife. Bill Moon was a marvelous man, a marvelous individual, and to have been taken down like that was absolutely outrageous. Within the year, Tyner was on trial and convicted of the murders. The jury took under an hour to sentence him to death in the state's electric chair. By 1982, Tyner was housed in Central Correctional Institute. Over the four prior years, he had been moved on and off death row, depending on the status of his many legal appeals and state Supreme Court rulings. He was housed in cell block two at CCI, which was run by prison trustee 
Pee Wee Gaskins. Jim was well into 50 interviews with Pee Wee, writing a book about the murderer's life. During one such meeting, in the cell block's common area, Jim mentioned to Pee Wee that he knew Bill Moon before Tyner murdered him. The first time that I ever encountered Rudolph Tyner in conversation with Pee Wee, he said, that's Rudolph Tyner. That's Rudolph Tyner. He's the man that killed your friend. Bill Moon might not have been Jim's personal friend, but he did have admiration for him. He told Pee Wee as much. Pee Wee seemed to sympathize with Jim. He thought it was terrible. He thought it should have been redeemed, made right. And then he said, I could blow him away if I had my 30-30 right here. Tony Simo, Bill Moon's son, wanted Tyner dead. Tony did everything in his power to assure justice was served. Here's Dick Harputlian. Well, I think Tony was somebody who was traumatized by their violent death and wanted justice, wanted revenge. And when he was sentenced to death the second time, the story is that Simo tried to attack him physically. He became obsessed with it. There's rumors that he hid on the roof of a building across from the courthouse at the second trial with a high-powered rifle to kill Tyner, but they brought Tyner in the door on the opposite side. I prosecuted him. I dealt with him. He seemed like the most normal, all-American guy in the world, just had this obsession with avenging the death of his parents. Jim Beatty knew about Tyner and his case. There's no way, though, that he knew Tony Simo was plotting his own form of justice after the courts couldn't get his parents' killer into the electric chair. Jim didn't know about the possible sniper attempt, nor was he aware that Tony Simo contacted Pee Wee in 1982. Someone had referred him to Gaskins, and he and Gaskins began telephone conversations. They never said Tyner's name, and he never said Simo's name, but touch-tone phones, uh, you can figure out the phone number that the FBI could from the tones, and it came back to Tony Simo, and it was done from the payphone in the cell block. And on those calls, Gaskins is arranging to get something smuggled in, and it turns out he talks about poison. Tony? Yeah. Jail warrant in the college? Yes, We've given that son of a bitch all of it but one dose, and all it's doing is making that son of a bitch sick. We put it in some book for him to drink the other night, and all it was made up sick as hell. It ain't done nothing. That's making him sick as hell. He'll look pale as hell for a day or two, and that's it. We got about one more dose. I'm going to give him in his eggs in the morning. <laughs> that son of a bitch about run me crazy. Oh, damn, me too. Should I set up the night? Word. Investigators learned that Simo and a friend had tested the poison on a dog, and the dog died. So now, two people had designs on killing Tyner, Pee Wee 
and Simo, and they conspired together to finish the job the poison couldn't do. Tyner would eventually have died in the electric chair, but for Tony Simo and for Pee it was not fast enough. So Pee Wee again took the law into his own hands. As Pee Wee told me several times, lots of people don't deserve to live. And Rudolph Tyner was one of those. So I come up with something. I need one electric cap and as much of a stick of damn dynamite as you can get. I'll take a damn radio and rig it into a bomb before he plugs it up. Pee Wee recorded this call on one of the many audio cassettes he had in his cell. His status as the prison trustee gave him the confidence to ask Simo for some explosives. If he got the materials into his cell, he could pretty much do whatever he wanted with them. He had access to everywhere in the cell block. Here's Dick Harputlian. First of all, on the ground floor, you've got 15 cells on each side of this island that rises out of the middle of the cell block. If you've seen any Humphrey Bogart or James Cagney movie, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. These were cell blocks built in the 30s and 40s. And between the backs of those two cells on either side is what they called the trace, which is a gap of about two and a half to three feet in which all the plumbing and electrical wires run. And Gaskins, as the building man, had access to that area, and none of these places were air-conditioned, so they had vents in the back of the cell into the trace to give some circulation of air, just a grate, probably a foot square. So Gaskins befriended Tyner, and his cell backed up to the trace, as Pee Wee's did, except it was offset by two cells, and those grates were at the top of the cell, so you could stand on a chair and talk to somebody through the grate on the other side of the cell block. Tony used Jim Beatty's home in Myrtle Beach as the return address on the package he sent Pee Wee. Jim had been a trusted visitor at the prison for some time. It was going to take something much stronger than poison to kill Tyner, like some C4 explosives and a long wire. That wire would spark the detonation. That wire would deliver the charge for the murder for hire. That wire was not going to bring Sunday afternoon football to prisoners like Jim imagined. He never thought to be worried about something he would send Pee Wee or God forbid that Pee Wee would use to implicate him. Pee Wee Gaskins was not my friend is a joint production from iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures. Produced and hosted by Jeff Keating. Executive producers are Courtney DeFries and Noel Brown. Written by Jim Roberts, Courtney DeFries, and Terry James. Edit, mix, and sound design by Jeremiah Kulani Prescott. Music composed by Diamond Street Productions, Spencer Garn, and Ian Newberry. Special thanks to Jim and Anita Beatty. Additional thanks to the University of South Carolina Moving Image Research Collections and the University of South Carolina. 
As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, what's good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.